This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus. Stay chill or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to the New Books Network podcast, How to Be Wrong. I'm John Trapagan, your host for today's episode, and I'm delighted to welcome George Stiles, who is a biochemist and author, most recently uh, put out a book called Contemplation, which uh, I will also say I uh, uh, had a conversation with him about on the New Books Network. It's a really interesting book, a very um, innovative way of looking at, at writing and thinking. George is also what we describe these days as an influencer on social media. He has over 37,000 followers on Twitter. Um, his approach to dealing with Twitter is novel. He focuses on asking probing questions that are designed to generate discussion. And sometimes those discussions can get rather heated. And I would say there's certainly plenty of room for things to go wrong in uh, what George has developed on Twitter. So, George, it's great to have you on How to Be Wrong. I'm looking forward to our conversation. Thank you so much for having me, John. I really appreciate it. This is great. Thank you. Sure. Um, so I'd like to start by asking if you could, you know, talk a bit about how you came to be a significant contributor on Twitter. Um, and I'd be interested in, in why you think Twitter is an effective or maybe not an effective medium for generating discourse, um, which has clearly been one of the main goals in the way that you approach it um, as a social media platform. So, you know, how did you get into doing this and, and why Twitter? Uh, it's a story of, of fooled by randomness, really. <laughs> the, the big thing was, you know, you go on for other reasons and then you end up somewhere where you never expected to be. I had originally just opened the account because I can't remember who told me to do it. They just said, oh, man, this is going to be amazing. Get an account now. And they were bullying me around. I said, OK, fine, I'll get an account. So I think I made it in like 2009. And I never paid attention to it, I thought, because I looked at it a couple of times. And I thought, oh, they're just, you know, people are just doing silly, you know, things for amusement. And then I came up and I wrote a book and I wrote a book and I thought, well, maybe I could put it on here. And then I noticed people were following me after that. And I thought, that's odd. That's kind of cool, but it's odd. And I looked and then it took me, 
I don't know how long to realize there was a writing community. And these people all stand behind one another because they know that you don't really have a lot of support out there if you're not published through a, you know, a publisher. And they really put, you know, they stood behind me. And then I realized, oh, okay, so if we all stand behind each other, you can build your account. So I did this, uh, and maybe about, I got to 10K followers. And then I realized I just started getting followers all the time. And the problem was, I always asked myself, I thought, you know, how is it that writers have all the time in the world to read everybody else's books? It takes a lot just to write a book itself, right? Plus all those other things we have to do in a day. I thought that's odd. And so I didn't, I felt kind of bad about obligating people to, you know, and I don't think anybody should think this This is just my way of looking at it. But I thought, you know, I don't want to obligate people to read my stuff because it takes time and they have their own books to write and, you know, maybe let that go. But one thing I've been doing, all, all I, th- I think for a long time, many years, is writing down my thoughts. And I, I'm always, you know, I look at things in the news and I get, you know, I kind of get miffed. I think, well, why is this going on? Why do people do silly things like that? And instead of getting mad, I take that energy and I try to put it into asking and figuring out why. And so the why is sort of the real thing. And I, I'm, I don't know, maybe I have an anxiety. I just need to know the answers to things. And a lot of the time there are none. So I want to know what's the next best thing I can get. And then it comes along that I realize, wait a minute, Twitter, if you look at it, is a big collective of minds. And so this is where the idea sort of came from. And that's how I sort of got from where I I started, I guess, to where I am now. And I think it's working. You know, you know, if you and I mean, a lot of people will say, well, it's not, man, not everyone gives you an answer. I say, yeah, but if you look at it statistically, <clears throat> excuse me, you will see that, you know, maybe not everyone has a brilliant answer every day, all the time, but everyone will have at least one brilliant answer. I think I've seen brilliant answers out of everyone at least once or twice, you know, so this is I think it's a tool or can be used as a tool to do, you know, to uncover or to discover answers. Yeah, that's, I think that's a really interesting idea. I, as I've come on to Twitter and, and sort of in some ways latched on to you and and followed some of the stuff that you've done. um, One of the things that I've noticed has been quite intriguing. So, you know, I will occasionally push on things like, okay, when people use the word religion, what do they really mean by that? And I will, you know, put out things to say, well, we should really be talking about Abrahamic religions. That's what you really mean. What I've noticed is that over the past several months, the discourse has changed a little bit. And now it's increasingly common to see people in the group that tends to talk about religion to say Abrahamic religion. And so people are thinking about this. They're thinking about, oh, okay, maybe that term religion is too broad. I got to narrow this down a little bit. And, and I, I, I like that way of thinking about it as a tool. And that's what I've seen that you've done a lot of is that you've used it as a, a tool to get people to exchange ideas, which then hopefully gets them to think in new ways or to think in more nuanced ways. Um, and you've done that with asking questions, lots and lots of questions. <laughs> yeah, because, I mean, the I think we all 
all possess the potential to have the same level of intelligence. It's just that not all of us have exposure. You know, we don't have access. And, you know, it's just surprising what will come out of people if you really get them thinking. And that's what I've noticed. And I think this is really what we should be doing with this. And of course, I don't know if you noticed the other day I ran a poll and I said, what, I think it was your question. Sorry. I put it on a poll (laughs) and it was, what should we be doing with Twitter? Right. And I put on the things that I think I, I seen most selling things, science or learning and, you know, thinking, uh, using it as a expression platform or cheap amusement. And of course, cheap amusement won out, but that's what people are making out of it though right? It doesn't have to be that. Twitter just cares that you abide by their guidelines. It can be whatever you want. And so I think maybe my group, like, you know, skewed it because they've probably seen it more than anyone else. And they, a lot of them picked learning and thinking, but I think it was overrepresented. I think it was pretty much, you know, cheap amusement is what most people see it as just to type something silly, but we're better than that. You know, people are better than that. And I think in this day and era, you know, we have this equipment that can connect us. I think it's time we should really need to connect and put our brains together because we've done it through the centuries, through a series of books and, you know, and minds, excuse me, we've accumulated knowledge that way, but now we can accumulate it right here, like a horizontal instead of a vertical gathering of, of brains. Yeah. I think in a sense, what you're describing is the democratization of knowledge and making knowledge and thinking, critical thinking, widespread rather than the the locus of a few people who are able to, you know, as in the past, there were a lot of people who couldn't read. Well, now, you know, most people, certainly in developed countries, can read, um, but they don't all necessarily have equal access to things, including something as simple as a library. But the internet changes that, and Twitter changes that. It creates a, a sort of a, a medium through which you can have really intelligent discussion and discourse. Uh, Twitter's difficult too, because it's too short. Um, it's hard to have a really intelligent conversation when you're limited to however many characters it limits you to. But um, but you can get a back and forth going and you can begin to explore ideas. And, and I think that's, that's one of the interesting things I see in what you've been doing with Twitter is trying to generate that sort of forum for going beyond it just being entertainment to being something that helps us to develop. Yeah, that's the thing. And um, also, I was hoping more people would be like you. I, we, I want more professors. I want more professors out there, right? Because I think it's very important that the general public interacts with you, you know? And that, you know, they see, and like you said, like this whole trend now, yeah, Abrahamic religion. It's not just religion, because religion's a big word. And it's, it's almost a sloppy term to try, you know, it's like a, trying to put too many things in a one small bag, you know, the bag being the term religion, you know, and we're, we got too much to put in there. Um, and now that's true. It's, it's the Abrahamic religions most people are having their certain issues with. Yeah, I think I agree with you. I think one of the problems with the academic world is that um, scholars tend to speak to each other. Um, and you, you see, I see a couple of different things that happen routinely. Um, I see this with students, you know, students are intimidated by all these people with PhDs. Well, as you and I both know, having PhDs, having a PhD doesn't make you intimidating. Um, (laughs) not at all, but the fact of the matter is people do get intimidated by that. And so one of, one of my ideas about 
trying to engage in Twitter is that it, it shows other people what someone who's devoted his life to thinking does. And also that, you know, I can say stupid things just like anybody else can say stupid things on Twitter. You know, my mind gets running and I'm not careful in the way that I produce something. And the next thing you know, 18 people are ripping it to shreds. And I'm like, yeah, that was stupid. Um, but I think that's healthy for scholars to do that because it shows that knowledge is a process rather than a state of being. It's something that keeps going. And I, that's one of the things I like about what you've done on Twitter is that you're pushing this sense that knowledge is this ongoing process and it's a process tied to questions, not answers. Uh, that's really what it's about. I think you've done an amazing job with that. Thank you very much, John. I appreciate that. But I also appreciate you being there. And I, I would like to hope that more, you know, scholars will jump on and join us because we really need their help. You know, it's been immensely helpful that you're there because you know exactly what the lines are. And a lot of our arguments are about where the lines are, yet they've already been established. They've already been demarcated. So this is one thing we need. Yeah, I, I think this is this is a place where academics need to get out there and get more involved and, and be part of those communities of, of exchanging ideas. Let me um, let me turn to you know a question. So you've been doing how long have you been doing this? The questions on Twitter now about three years solid. I think it's I, I think it actually is three years now. So nothing, absolutely nothing, has gone wrong in those three years, right? Well, I mean, Ben, did you want to call wrong? <laughs> I mean, because so. <laughs> I don't, I, the other day, for example, um, you know, I asked a question and people, you could see how it could be taken the other, the way it, I didn't intend it to be, but it, you could also see that it couldn't be missed either. But, you know, they fired off and they, they're, they're being, you know, they're not being honest. I mean, they're saying, oh, so you're saying this, and I'm saying, no, you, it's very clear what I meant. And if you you don't have to attack me, you can ask for clarification very nicely. That's what I do, too. You know, so I know you're a bit disingenuous about what you're really up to here. So, you know, so these things happen, but I welcome them because there's an opportunity to see human behavior. And, you know, I'm not, you know, I think they, they probably sit there and think I'm as you know, emotional about it as they are. And I'm not, you know, because I'm literally saying, well, this is people. This is what we do. Never mind how I feel about the comments and anything that's irrelevant. What is it I am seeing? And this is what I ask myself a lot. And then I'll come back next week, you know, or the week after. <laughs> and I'll ask you guys a bunch of questions and try to see what everybody else thinks, because somewhere in there, there's always a brilliant comment. In fact, most of the time, there's more brilliant comments than not. You know, you can see there's depth and there's value in what people are saying about these things. So, yeah. the, oh, go ahead. Yeah, sorry. Oh, no, no, that's all I had to say. Because <laughs> <laughs> that's yeah. about the only thing that does go wrong is just that you'll get, you know, these attacks and swarmed by like a thousand accounts. And I, I sometimes wonder if they're bots. Maybe. I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, that's it. It's interesting what I've noticed in asking questions on Twitter. One thing I have noticed is there's a tendency of a lot of people to conflate the question with the idea that you're you're propelling a particular answer to that question. A lot of people I've noticed really seem to struggle with the idea that when you ask a question, it's literally just asking the question, that you don't necessarily have an agenda. I've seen that in responses to your questions. 
Uh, I got it big time the other day when I asked that question about, you know, the atheism of, of Stalin and Mao. And, and, you know, that was really just a question. And yet, you know, people, a couple of people went ballistic on me saying, you know, you're, you're obviously, uh, uh, you know, deeply committed Christians. And I mean, I had some really interesting responses. But what, what intrigued me was this sense of the inability to sort of parse the asking of a question from implying an answer. Hey, have you run into that kind of problem as well? Oh, absolutely. I think I've seen some things like that. Yeah. Absolutely. There's all sorts of biases flying around. In fact, that's the one thing you notice more than anything is people I don't think have been taught critical thinking because they don't know what a fallacy is. They don't know what a cognitive bias is. And it's just the most predominant thing. And they're confused by it because they don't know it's been, you know, again, studied and demarcated and sort of, you know, you know, it's been, it's been formulated, right? So they don't know this because our education system, I think is willfully trying to keep that out because a lot of things lose their power very quick when you have a critically thinking populace, but you get this all the time. You get people going off on rampages. Oh, what do you mean by that? You know? And it's like, are you serious? Come on. Don't be silly, you know, just just read the question. I mean, it, it just you can answer it. You don't have to. And like a lot of people will come on and for me in my behalf, come on and very kindly on, you know, they'll just say you could have just, you know, skipped by the question. Mm-hmm. You know, if it really emotionally affects you that bad. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. You raise it. I think you know, something that's really important. You, you, you point out the problems with education and, and I, I, you and I very much agree that education is a real problem. But there's, a, there's an interesting, I hadn't thought about it quite this way until you just said this. There's an interesting sort of side effect of, of this. Um, you have a lot of really smart people out there that really want to learn. And so they'll go and read a bunch of things. And obviously we can learn anything by just reading. But there is value to guided reading by people who are engaged in sort of the broad spectrum of things you can read on the topic. And one of the things I think that's a problem sometimes, I see this a lot with people who make the the logical fallacy um, argument about a lot of things. They've read stuff about formal logic, but they don't really have a a way to contextualize it in terms of the way discourse and debate and discussion goes on. So they point out the logical fallacies. They can be real. It's not that they're not necessarily there. But that alone isn't really what having a discussion, an intellectual discussion is about. It's not about pointing out the logic of an argument or the fallacies and this kind of thing. It's, it's basically, again, this kind of process of interacting to create ideas and thinking. And of course, if you don't have an education system that's teaching us how to do that, that's teaching us how to sort of be guided in the way that we learn, then, then you have you don't have a kind of a structure for it. And I, that's what I see a lot on Twitter is there are a lot of really smart people who are trying to read, trying to learn, but there isn't much structure. I think you're, what you're doing with the questions gives some structure to that. It sort of guides the way people think and it does what a teacher does. It's, it's instead of giving a bunch of answers, it's a bunch of questions that you try to get people to think about. How would that, what would you think of that characterization of what you're trying to do? Absolutely. I'm trying to get people to understand about how, you know, how the people that actually work in seeking knowledge actually go about finding and how they, you know, work with it. And this is the idea, but even behind my book, um, 
contemplation is that, look, there's a citation to what I'm asking. And this is a way just to, you know, sort of say to people, this is how we find information. And this is how we, you know, and and evaluating it is another, you know, it's another whole other thing. But I just want to get people onto the idea that you need to go to people that are, you know, held accountable for the things they claim. And that's you, that's professors, that's people that publish in reputable journals. You are held to be accountable. You know, you could lose your job if you publish something fraudulent. It's not like, you know, Googling, you know, some nefarious website, you know, (laughs) full of conspiracy theories. This guy, you know, is going to be, you know, left alone, you know, they don't, they're not held accountable. And, you know, a, a lot of people don't understand that I found is they don't understand that professors are very, very much held accountable for what you publish and claim. And I'm trying to get people to understand that. Yeah. I think that's a very, very important thing for people to understand is that the, the, the process by which knowledge is generated in the academy is designed around basically trying to smash everything that we think we know. That's what goes on. That's what peer review is about. Let's keep tearing it down constantly And that's what expertise is really about, is being open to the idea that everything can be torn down, that you can challenge any idea. Unfortunately, uh, the Academy does a lousy job of expressing that to the broader public, and the broader public doesn't really understand. I mean, and, and, you know, stepping back, there are lots of problems with peer review. Uh, I mean, you know, I'm... (laughs) The problems that even aren't in, you know... Like there are things that you can't do anything about. So, for example, if if I get asked to review a paper on um, rural life in Japan, and of course it's a blind review, but usually within a couple sentences, I know who wrote it. Um, there's no way around it because there are only like you know what ten of us in the world that do this or something like that. And, and so, you know, it's just like I can tell by what the field site is, what the topic is. I've got a pretty good idea. That doesn't mean I'm going to necessarily be automatically biased, um, but there are always problems in any system that we have. Um, but that said, the peer review system is powerful because it undermines what we think we know rather than just saying, okay, we've got the answers, let's move on. It constantly undermines it. And of course, you're a biochemist, you deal with the exact same thing you know, in, in the natural sciences. Everything, you've posted this several times about, you know, the process of science is a process of falsification, not a process of getting the truth. We never really get there. But that's a hard one for people to kind of accept. But that's what the academy is built around. Yeah, well, I mean, this is sort of the problem about embracing uncertainty. <laughs> you know, <laughs> people don't want to hear that. They, they want to hear that there's a fixed 100% true answer out there. And we are finding it's not the case. All fields converge on that same idea. Biochemistry, no matter what you are, anthropologist, archaeologist, mathematician, I'm sure everyone in, you know, studying these things finds at some point there are, there's, there's always somewhere where there's no fixed answer. And it's That's- still up in the air. That's a powerful observation. If you think of it, the way you said that, that, that in a sense, what the Academy is converging on is a deep awareness that we can't actually get the, the answers that first of all, the process is never going to end. And second, 
even if the answers are out there, we just don't seem to have access to them in that kind of, um, in any way where we could be confident that, okay, yep, this is it. And, you know, this is even true, you know, for people who come out of areas like theology who are convinced that they have the answers, except that if you read the history of theology, there've been all sorts of different answers to the same questions. And so if they were honest and look back at it, they would have to say, oh yeah, we don't have the answer either. (laughs) (laughs) But no, yeah, that's a, that's a very interesting way to think about it. So we're converging on that. Um, so your tweets have a way of, you know, they generate exchanges related to a lot of them are problems of philosophy. Um, and then, of course, sometimes they drift into personal attacks. Um, I'm curious, why do you think the personal attacks happen? Um, and how do you think we could, you know, what, uh, you're obviously doing this or asking questions, but what can we do to generate more insightful exchanges on Twitter and other kinds of uh, social media that respond to that tendency to have attacks? I think the big thing is to understand why an attack happens at all. Like, why would someone do that? You know, it's a very odd thing that someone would just come along and just freak out on something that, you know, say 30 people already answered and, you know, seem pretty, you know, personally uninvolved with. Uh, <laughs> why do people get upset? Well, I think it's just like a lot of people have already said on there. You're, cha- you know, it's the first challenge to their worldview. You know, they're 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 finally being challenged, and this is sort of the the initial shock factor. You know, they're actually being hit with the idea that, oh my goodness, you mean I don't have this right? And a lot of it, you know, a lot of sunk cost fallacy is going on there, right? Like a lot of people don't want to have to, you know, face the fact that you know what they've been led to believe their whole lives may not in fact at all be true. And, you know, they don't want to, you know, they don't want to think about all those years and all that energy to devotion in it were just a waste, but that's the unfortunate thing. You can just do that in this world. This world does have that possibility. So I think a lot of things stem from that and you'll find that some people maybe just aren't ready to do it. And I, I say this to a lot of people when they start to, you know, swear and get, you know, nasty, I just say, look, you're not kind of ready for this. And I, you know, they obviously try to paint me as condescending and that's fine. You know, I have no problem with that. If you want to, you know, illusion yourself, however you will. But the problem is ask yourself, why am I kind of pushing you aside? But why am I not pushing these other people aside? They don't tell me what I want to hear most of the time. A lot of people have a lot of problems with my questions. They point it out and they say to me, George, this is flawed. Look here. And they'll give me a perfect example, you know, example or reason why. And I can't say nothing. I have to say, they, they got it. Fair is fair, right? So why are you getting blocked when you do this? Well, because you're just giving me emotion. You have no content in what you're saying. You, your, your disagreement holds no content. And so I think a lot of people need to understand that, you know, if we're going to have an intellectual discussion, we need to really sit before we talk and think what value is my statement, if I put it out there, going to give to the overall benefit of all of our energy here. And I don't think those people see that, right? They're emotional, they're reacting, right? And I think a lot of people, you know, have had, I I, I don't know, they haven't had great situations in their life where they're able to understand that, right? A lot of times they've just been in a reactive environment. And so I think we're just seeing that because it is slowing down a little bit, I think, um, the more I'm on here. Now, that could be just because I get followers that get to know me more and I know them. 
but I find that it's maybe coming slightly out of fashion, if you will, because I think people are starting to read more on there and they're starting to see, well, wait a minute. Yeah. Maybe they got a point. Yeah. That's uh, what you, what you described there is, is basically what, you know, academic publishing is about. You need to ask yourself before you write the paper you want to publish, you need to ask, does this contribute anything? And if it doesn't, don't write the damn paper. And it's the same with the tweet. And, and, and yet that's not really a part of our normal discourse that we don't really ask ourselves, okay, is this thing I'm about to say, does it contribute anything? Um, but Twitter's a little different because Twitter actually is a form of publication. It's, it's, you're literally publishing your ideas. They're going to be there and they're going to stay there. And there is value in being careful. Now, even those of us who are very careful will get emotional sometimes and, and we'll sort of lose it. I've certainly had my experience with that on occasion on Twitter <laughs> where, you know, I just seen something I thought, oh my goodness, that is so stupid. And I respond that way. But, um, but the fact of the matter is each time we put something out there, it's a publication and it would be good if people thought of it that way, if they thought, okay, I'm putting this out. I, is this worth saying? Is this add something? Um, and of course, a lot of times what we have to say doesn't add anything. It really doesn't make a difference. I agree totally because that's the problem, right? And it's exactly like what you just said. You know, it's a publication. You are putting it in front of people ask yourself before you do this reactive reflexive thing that you are impulsively and impatiently ready to throw out there. Is it really worth it? You know, are you going to get a benefit from this and is everyone else, or are you just getting a momentary benefit of ranting or, you know, pushing off steam, you know, onto others. And a lot of us, you know, we're not affected by it. Like they get these people that, you know, throw ad homonyms at me. I've been called a few choice names here and there. And I say, that's great, man. But, you know, it doesn't really, you know, you have no real effect. You know, I, it's irrelevant to me what you think about me, you know, if you're going to say things like that. <laughs> you know, really, it's just, you know, baseline flat. <laughs> right. So that, that brings me to the, you know, kind of what has been in this podcast series, really the, the, the topic that we've been revolving around is the idea of intellectual humility. And, you know, I've asked a lot of different people to define that. So could you define it? Tell me what you think of as intellectual humility. Uh, you know, the first thing, and it's not a really good thing, but it's just, I don't know everything. I don't know everything. And I often wonder, do I know anything? And that's, that's John, that's the best way I can put it to you is that when I think of that, those words, that's what comes to my mind the fastest is, do I know anything at all? What is knowing exactly? What is knowing, you know? And you, as a professor, scholar, you've been looking at what do we know? And then do we even know it? I'm sure you have many publications that I haven't looked at yet. Because <laughs> there's quite a few of them. <laughs> and you know, I bet in there, there's a lot of papers that just say, well, we kind of don't really know, but maybe as to, you know, here's something we can think of when we keep studying it down the line. You know, I'm sure you have something like that, at least one. I've seen a lot of people publish these and they're, they're great because it just goes to show you, we don't really know. And do we know anything at all? You know, what do we know? What is knowing? I'm perplexed. What, yeah. Well, what is knowing is a really hard one. And I think asking that question is at the, at the ground of intellectual humility is, is just, what do we mean when we talk about, I know something and, 
Um, you know, I, I, I've described it this way, but, you know, so when I came back from doing my dissertation field work, I spent a year and a half in Japan. I was a Fulbright scholar there, you know, all the stuff you're supposed to do. I come back with like 2,500 pages of type double-spaced field notes. That's a lot of data. And, and, you know, I sat there at my computer thinking, what the hell am I going to do with all this? And, of course, then I started thinking and reading. And eventually I turned that into a dissertation. But then as you're writing, there are moments where you come back and, and honestly you think, am I just making this shit up? Because I'm picking and choosing the things that I want to include here. I'm not just taking my field notes and saying, here, folks, read this. It's my dissertation. I'm, I'm writing a story based on the data I collected. And um, it's interesting. You know, my son is, is uh, um, a geochemist, and he talks about getting the data so that you can write the story to get the information out there because that's what you have to have. You have to have the data to support the story that you want to present. And I think what often is kind of missed is that in that process of getting the data, analyzing the data, there's this moment where we decide what matters. And that's where the story comes from. And that's subjective. That's not just an objective thing that we do. And that doesn't matter whether we're talking about the natural sciences or the social sciences or whatever. There's this subjective moment in there. And that should really make us sort of pause and think about, okay, what do we mean when we talk about knowledge? Because there's that subjective moment there that is when I decide what matters. And I'm, I'm sure you run across the same sort of thing, you know, doing work in, in biochemistry where you're, you're making a decision about what matters. That's the problem is like, what is the signal really? And what is the noise? Because when we're writing a story, we claim all the things that we present is the signal. But what if some of the signal was discarded and, it, you know, in the noise that we didn't, you know, I'm sure when you were doing your field work, there are things you didn't include in there. That, you know, obviously to you at the time, we're like, well, why would I write that? But then you never know, right? It's like, but what if there was just some kind of latent connection that I didn't make or, and is, is now what I've written, is it, you know, incomplete in that sense? You know, we don't know, right? We don't know until something brings it to our attention. I think that's literally what the problem is. <laughs> so how do we know all this? And that's the problem. Signal and noise. Which one is which? Yeah. And you know, it's actually, when you said that, it, it brought back a, a story from when I was writing my dissertation. And um, so when I was in rural Japan, you don't see this really at all anymore, but um it was not that unusual to see um, particularly older people, including women, just kind of peeing by the side of the road. And it wasn't like everywhere, but it wasn't like really strange to see that. And I included that in the description in one spot in my dissertation. And my advisor said, do you really want to include that? What does it add? And I said, well, it's describing the way people live there. And then he, but he made a point. He said, it's true, but it also could conceivably embarrass people who live there. Do you want that as part of the description? And then ask yourself, what, what function does putting this in do that's important to the knowledge that you're trying to generate in writing this? And when I thought about it, I thought, you know, 
It really doesn't serve much of any function. It's not particularly important to understanding the context. It's interesting, but um, so I didn't put it in. And I think he was right about that. But that really underscores some of the, the very nuanced levels at which we have to make decisions about what matters, what doesn't matter. This is you know, it's very powerful in the social sciences. But again, it's in the natural sciences, too. We're picking and choosing things. No, that's the thing. I, I think that personally is a very interesting thing, and I'm almost sad that you did leave it out, but <laughs> you know what I mean? Because, you know, you know, culturally, and it gives you a different window on what people find acceptable and and how, you know, a lot of us, when we live in our country and in our world, we think that is the ground zero of, you know, all ethics and morality, you know, and it's not always, it's not the case. Lots of people have other things that they do that are perfectly acceptable, perfectly normal. And I think that shows a lot of interesting things. So I personally think you should have included it, but I mean, who am I? <laughs> I'm not a PI. Well, I, but I think the, the, the point is also that if you do get two different people looking at it, they're going to respond to it in different ways. And so it's almost an unanswerable question as to whether or not that little data point needs to be there. I could see reasons to put it there. I could see reasons not to put it there in the end. You know, part of it is, I mean, my advisor is an absolutely fabulous human being and, and you could have all kinds of conversations and debates with him and he and I did all the time. But ultimately, and this kind of gets back a little bit to what we were talking about earlier, I deferred to his expertise. This is a guy, you know, who, when I was doing my dissertation, already had 30 years experience doing field work in Japan. Um, and so, you know, not continually, but going there every year and some very long period stays. And I defer to his expertise. I think that's the right thing to do. I think when we look at people who have deep expertise about something, it makes sense to not, not by saying don't challenge it, but if, you know, in the end you kind of look at it and go, okay, I can see the reason why he's thinking that way. And unless I've got a really good reason not to think that way, I think I'll accept that position of expertise. Um, and of course, again, I think the perspective on that also might change over time. Now we're 30 years away from that. Someone might be much more inclined to include that example because they want to show cultural difference in a way that was different, you know, 30 years ago. And I mean, he started his field work in Japan in 1961. That was the year I was born. And so, uh, you know, on the one hand, he just will always know a shitload more about Japan than I'll ever know. Um, and, and I want to take account of that. I think expertise actually genuinely matters. Uh, you were pointing at that earlier. Yeah, the big thing, and if I could weave this back into Twitter, because I've been trying to push this point home, and I, I don't know, maybe I'll have to write a personal anecdote. There are a lot of, there are a lot of scholars I don't like personally. You know, I would say I really don't like them as people. You know, I, they, to me, they have all the wrong, you know, you will just say they are, they're a pile of red flags, but I value what they have to say as scholars. And what I find is that a lot of people, if they don't like the person, they immediately write off everything they have to say. And I think that's a very bad thing to do. Now, in your case, you had a, you know, uh, a, you know, a PI who's, you know, trying to get you to write a dissertation too, which is a, which is another ball game too, right? Like it's also, you have to be very selective. And I think he gave you obviously the right advice there, but the thing is, you know, when people come to someone they don't like, 
they do this whole fallacy, right, of, you know, well, discounting everything that they're going to say, even if it is right. Or let's just say more in line with what we observe to be consistent. This has been a big problem because no matter what, I keep asking this question in a few different ways just to try to see maybe is it, am I too direct? Am I getting it? No, people are very solid about it. If someone they don't like says something true or not, they're just not going to listen to them because F them, (laughs) you know, and this is a very big problem. And I don't think they understand how much we're losing. And I, I, I listen, I read the papers of, you know, PIs or, you know, whoever, scholars I've met, and I don't like them as people, you know, I'm kind of looking at them, thinking, I don't know, but, you know, I can't, I can't, you know, just toss them away, you know, and say, oh, I, because I don't like you, I hate you and you're gone. No, 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 that's not how we should look at this. That's too emotional. and That's not right. We need to look at them and say, but do they have anything of value? And they do. And so well, that's the thing, right? And I'm the ultimate school rebel. I dropped out because I hated teachers. I didn't like any of them. I liked one teacher and that was it. I hated school. I didn't like anything. But you know what? Here I am. I come back to it and I was made for it. You know, I thought I hated school. No, it was just the environment of being in a public school system. But well, <laughs> that's a, a sort of another whole can of worms. It's a, a, a really profoundly important one, though. It's It's like I've over the last several months, I've I've learned from a variety of people that I most likely have ADHD. Um, I struggled all through school until I finally got to college, and only now, in retrospect, do I realize it's because my brain simply does not function the way the structure of standard schooling expects people's brains to function. And so, I just never could. You know, I, I do like really weird things. You know, people would get really annoyed with me because I won't take notes. If I go to a lecture, I never take notes because if I take notes, I have no memory of what the lecture was about and the notes don't make any sense to me. So I'm much better off just sitting back with my arms folded and listening carefully. Um, but then, you know, if you're in a school setting, you'll have the teacher telling you, you need to be taking notes. That's how you learn. You take notes. Well, not everybody does. And that's a, that's a really important observation, George. I think that, that the, the ability to conform to conventions of learning and education has nothing to do with intelligence. That's a real problem that people conflate those two things, that they say, well, the, the really smart people are the ones who can go out and get an A on the test. That's not necessarily true at all. Um, the people who get the A on the test are often the people who are really good at conforming to conventional approaches to learning. But how much they're learning is another whole question. Um, and I, you, know, you said no, like you're, you know, what do you think of that? I Grades do not measure anything except the game of school. That's how I look at it. It's not measuring anything. And I, I fought, I have fought with, you know, professors over this and they're like, well, yeah, well, that's not how you think. And I'm saying, no, it's not how you think, <laughs> you know, you know, get into these arguments. And the problem is, is that a lot of the time you don't see someone with outstanding grades in real life, get anywhere outstanding. You know, in fact, a lot of them uh, just take to, and I mean, a lot of them just become what I would say is the average, you know, expectation of someone in that they don't become outstanding. But I think a lot of that is the school trying to sell itself in the system, right? 
there's a lot of that, right? It's to say, we're the university. We know what's best. Our grading system works. You know, trust us. Give us funding. <laughs> I think there's a lot of that in there. And so I think a lot of that sort of, we, you know, gets misconstrued, obviously, because it's very easy to. And people think, well, good grades equal smart people. But there's a lot of people in the general public that are not fooled by that. They're going, well, wait a minute, you know, what is this guy doing or what is that guy doing? And they're not that smart. How We're all kind of the same intelligence. And so people start to add two and two. And even if they can't prove it, even if they can't, they know that there's something there and they haven't heard anyone really give them a reason not to keep it in their head. And yeah, I don't think grades, you know, are anything other than what you just said. It's just, you know, conforming to conventions. So I tried an experiment last term in one of my classes. I didn't grade anything. Awesome. And um, I, I decided, and I'm actually going to do this with smaller classes from now on. It's very hard to do with a large class because, you know, it, it requires a different approach to running a class. But what I decided to do was to drop all grades. So my students write papers, but they don't get grades on them. And they get lots and lots of comments from me on the papers. And some students were pretty uncomfortable with it at first. They were like, well, how am I going to know how I'm doing? And and the way they know how they're doing is they have to fill out a self-evaluation. And then we have a conference together where we discuss and negotiate what they think their grade should be for the first half of the term and then the second half of the term. Because I have to give grades per the rules of the university. But how I go about that is up to me. And, um, well, there were some interesting results of this. Um, when I got to the end and got my, you know, course instructor surveys, almost every student said, well, by not having to worry about the grades, I could focus on the quality of my writing. I could take chances in my writing. I could be creative. I could try new things. And I knew I didn't have to, to conform to some convention. And they all said, like, I really learned something. The other thing that happened was I had no attendance requirements at all. So if you want to come, come. If you don't, don't. Awesome. <laughs> awesome. Yeah. So Brilliant. here's what happens. I look at the attendance at the, because I kept track because I wanted to just see. At the end of the term, I had about a 95% attendance rate. Wow. That's amazing. Yeah. So it means they were coming because they wanted to, not because yes, they does. were forced to. Yes. And the other thing that was really intriguing was I found that in not having to assign a grade, I was liberated to really, really critique the papers, to really get into the details, give lots of very precise criticism, because I didn't have to go and say, okay, I have just covered this thing with red ink. So how do I translate that into a grade? Does that mean there are all these problems? So it's a D. I didn't have to go there. And then, of course, they can take the, the way it was set up is they could then submit a, a revised version based on my comments. And so they could take the comments, learn from them, not be worried about what it meant in terms of a grade. And then I can give them even harsh comments and not worry about, well, what does that mean in terms of a grade? And it was a wonderful class and um, students got a lot out of it. And I don't know. I don't know how you you know, apply that across the board. And I think there's certain kinds of teaching where that would not work. Um, but I think there are a lot of places where it would. Um, yeah. 
Uh, I wish more people were doing that. In fact, that's what university should be. And I don't know why they're doing it the other way. It needs to all go and get thrown out. I mean, unless it's like lab work, which is like, you know, we have this protocol and it works, but that that's for another kind of class, you know, when it comes to the kind of classes you're teaching and even science classes are like this, this is what we need to do. Because like you said, they felt that they were not constrained and this is what we got to stop doing is like taking someone who's just trying to grow and not let them grow. <laughs> exactly. You know I mean? Yeah. Yeah. And so I think yeah. it's brilliant. Well, we'll see. I'm doing it with both of my classes in the fall. So we'll see how it goes for experiment number two. But I think the idea of trying to move away from being constrained by discourse and by, by exchange of ideas, instead of seeing it as a way to, blossom ideas. To me, that's what education should be about. That's what I see you doing on Twitter is that you're using these questions to try to get away from conventions. And of course, I think some of what happens when people get into this kind of, um, I'm going to attack is that you've challenged a convention and a convention that they bought into. And so they don't like that. It's, it's hard when convention gets challenged. It's really hard to say, Oh, wow you're kind of undermining my root thoughts on this and that's a good thing, but that's where we should really be. We should be, Oh, George, man, you just totally undermined what I think about this. Thank you. I appreciate that. That's where we should be, but that's really hard to do when you've grown up in an educational system that emphasizes conform, conform to the conventions. And that can mean different things. That can be regular education. It can mean religious education. Those two things are not, that different in the sense that they they set up a structure and expect you to conform to the structure and expect you to conform to what's expected knowledge instead of saying, yeah, the whole point is here is to just get you to challenge everything. And I don't see a really dramatic difference in the way a lot of education works, uh, whether it's religious education or secular education. It tends to plug people into conformity rather than encouraging unconformity, encouraging creativity, basically, is what we're talking about. And um, I did, well, I'm on a soapbox, I guess, but <laughs> this is something that really bugs me. No, I hear you all the way. And, and one other thing, I think you said it in the beginning, maybe you did influencer. Um, yeah, yeah that's influencer. the word that gets used. Yeah. yeah, I want to throw it out. I don't look on myself as an influencer. I look at maybe at best, I am a spark to all of the wooden gasoline that's out there. Um, I don't think we should look at, I don't ever want to be known as an influencer. I just want to be me in a group of thinkers. That's what I want. And I want a big group of thinkers. So that's what I wanted to think. That's my approach to it is to realize like, look, you know, there's a lot of brilliant people out there. We just got to get tap into them and get them to talk. And, and a lot of them are willing to talk. Like I have a number of you I got, and I know you see them on there on my posts. These guys are actually answering the question that there's like, a, you know, there's a whole bunch of you that literally shut down my questions. I think you answer them. Like, you know, I don't think, I think we actually can say to a certain degree, we know this, you know, they'll say it in the span of a tweet because a tweet forces us to really concentrate what we want to say. There's also an advantage to that character limit. And, you know, we, we really just condense down what we're trying to say. So it's a brilliant medium. 
And with you get all these minds, and I try to tell people all the time, read the comments, read the comments, just like your students, you know, read your comments, because this is where all the gold is. And, you know, a lot of people have come back to me and said, yeah, I, I, there's some really smart people on your page. I said, yeah, this is, this is great. This is what keeps me doing it. It's because I'm starting to be able to recruit the hidden smart people, you know, the people that have been in the shadows and they're watching, they're watchers, they're thinkers, they, they, you know, they're, they're taking apart reality and they're putting it back together in their head and they're modeling it and they're saying, hmm. And I've been able to pull them out of the shadows and bring them on here. So it's great. And I think it's done something. I don't know what yet, but I think it's getting more people to think because it, you know, when I first started this, it was just, you know, Twitter was just people saying silly things and getting a million likes for, it, you know, saying something like I saw some green grass today, 4,000 likes, <laughs> you know, and it's changed now where I see other people, other accounts are asking questions and they are like mine. They are, they're straight to the point. They're not, you know, none of these. So do you like jello? You know, it's, it's, do you, are you satisfied with your government? Do you care about, you know, televangelists ripping off the public, you know, these kind of things. And it's like, it's great. This is what I want. And I hope people keep doing it. Everyone. I, I would have everyone do it. I agree. Uh, you, you actually also make a wonderful point about the advantage of Twitter. I had not quite thought about it this way, but, you know, I encourage students to be concise. And if you use Twitter the right way, it is a great tool to develop the skill to be concise in expressing your ideas. Um, one of the worst parts of the academic world is the tendency to blather on endlessly and just have, you know, 20,000 words. It's, it's like, um, what was it? Winston Churchill said that uh, about somebody that he has the tremendous ability to put the fewest number of ideas into the largest number of words. Um, <laughs> ac academics are brilliant at this. And, but if we actually want to touch anybody, we need to be concise. We need to be able to get good ideas out clearly in, in a brief way, because then you can do something with it. You can start thinking about it. And, and those comments that come after are the elaboration of that. And that structure is powerful. Um, I hadn't quite thought of it about that way. So thank you. That's, that's an interesting, it is a really interesting way to think about what you can do with Twitter. Yeah, that's the thing. We got to look at Twitter for the advantages of it. But yesterday on that poll that I mentioned earlier, now, even though there was, you know, cheap amusement was the winner, but it was marginal, right? It was 37%. I think uh, expressing yourself was like 32. Learning and thinking, though, was like 31 point something. So it goes to show that there are a good number of people that are seeing the potential in it. And I hope that, you know, and people that are looking for amusement, that's fine. They can, I, I have nothing against it. I'm not for that myself, but that doesn't mean I'm the whole world. But I'm just glad that there are other people using this app and coming in and starting to see the actual potential about it, is that we can all connect as one great big giant mind and really start to figure things out. And I think that's what the world needs more than anything right now. I agree. Uh, you might want to put that poll out like once every two or three months and see if over time you can kind of track if it changes. Uh, it would be really intriguing to look at that and then ultimately say, well, look, you know, over the course of two years, I've got these data points every month or every two months and the balances have changed. And, you know, that would be very interesting to see if that that happens or doesn't happen. Even if it doesn't happen, it would be interesting. But um, no, it might I hear be worth you. a shot. 
Absolutely. Yeah. That's a great idea. And that's what I should be doing more so is taking that exact poll and like you say, regular intervals and just see if it changes at all. Now, I mean, that could reflect my own, you know, follower base, but that's still fine. You know, it'd be interesting to just see what the change is, as you say. Well, yeah. And even if it does reflect that, it also says something about how a follower, follower base is formed and constructed over time and how it changes in relation to what sort of the, the leader of that follower base chooses to do in Twitter. Um, I mean, there are people doing research on this kind of thing. Uh, I, I don't know too much about it, but I think um, it's, it, it's interesting if the, the research kind of comes from inside of the, the way the process is happening, because then, then you can really see some, um, you can look at change and you can see what's going on with that change, I think. So it would be really cool if you can, you know, occasionally plop that out there and kind of see what, what's going on with it. And then even ask people, well, what do you think about this? You know, this is the other thing that's happened in uh, ethnographic research is that uh, we take our research back to the people that we want to learn about and ask them, so what do you think? Did I get it right? Am I got it wrong? What, why, why can you... Um, can you interpret what's going on in the data that I've collected and help me to understand it? Because of course, as we've been talking about, there are a lot of really smart people out there, many of whom don't necessarily have PhDs, but they're really smart. And so you can take your data and, and say, you know, what do you think about what I think I've learned? And then they will tell you, they'll say, you know, um, yeah, I don't, I don't think you got that right. Um, and this is why. And, and that's that process that is the generation of knowledge instead of the, okay, I went and did a study and studied these people, and now I have the answer. Well, that's never true. That never happens. And so, um, because for one thing, as soon as you walk in there to be Mr. Anthropologist, they start interpreting you. And so the context is changing and, and you know, just being there changes things. And so, um, but, but they also, they're, analyzing the person doing the study, but they're analyzing themselves. This is what humans do all the time. We do a lot of self-analysis and a lot of good self-analysis. So in a sense, that's kind of, you know, what, what Twitter can be good at is it can generate context for that. So, so we've talked about a whole bunch of different things. We're getting close to an hour now. Um, what else would you like to add? What have we missed that you think is important that we ought to talk about? Well, the thing is, I think, you know, the big thing, again, the one thing I wanted to touch on was the influencer idea that, you know what I mean? I, I think that should be done away with. I, I'm, I have no supreme, you know, place in all of this. You know, I'm not, I'm not, you know, you know, I just here to get people started because I know they have, I know they have value. I know they have content. You know, there's something in everyone that they can share that's got to, you know, there's got to be something. And statistics kind of show us this. Maybe there's someone that doesn't have anything, but that's not everybody. In fact, I think that would be a very small minority, if at all. Somebody always has an insight, some different way they've looked at something from the rest of us. And I think we need to tap into that, you know? It's like playing the lottery for a win. The more tickets that are bought, it's more likely someone will win the lottery. And I, th I think that we need to think more like that. One thing, uh, speaking of that, is everyone I, I wish would get some kind of basic understanding of stats. Because I think a lot of people don't understand the difference between, you know, an exception and the rule, you know, all these kind of things. They, you know, for example, there was somebody trying to tell me we're having an argument about, you know, people eating. And I'm saying, well, biologically, it's, it's, a, it's, it's a must. 
you know, you don't exist very long if you don't. And they're saying, well, there's been people that haven't eaten their whole lives. And I'm saying, even if that's true, that is not the exception. Sorry, that's not the rule. It's the exception. Even if it did happen, and I doubt it did, but, you know, they don't understand it, some of them. And they're not seeing that a lot of how, I guess, the human view uh, looks at things is statistical, right? It's that, you know, I may not do something dangerous. I may not get hurt the first time. You know, I may not get hurt the second time. I may do it 20 times. I may not. But the point is there's a probability associated with a certain behavior that I could get hurt doing it because it's been known that you get hurt. I don't think people understand these concepts well enough. And so I don't know what to do about it. I wish we had more statisticians that could be on and kind of find a way to talk and help people to understand. Um, I don't know. That's one of the big things I think is a big problem. I think that is just hugely important. Um, people don't know how to read the stats they read on the CNN website or USA Today or wherever they're looking. You know, something as simple as if everyone understood what a standard deviation is and what it's telling you about the data, that you can get the same mean with a lot of different dispersals of data, and it means something really different. Um, and but people don't really understand that. They see, oh, well, the mean is 0.6, so on average it's you know 60% of the people do this. That is not what is necessarily going on. Um, but, but it's profoundly important in what has become a data-driven society to understand what it means to interpret the data with statistics and what the numbers that we get are about. And uh, that's, a, that's a great observation because I think it's... Um, it's a huge problem, really huge problem. I agree. It also makes people easy to manipulate because, I mean, you know, you can make statistics say a lot of different things and get people to think something that they might not think otherwise because, look, the numbers say this. Well, the numbers say that if you present them this particular way, but you're missing this important information about those numbers over here. Um, so, yeah, that's a, I think that's a really important observation. Yeah, that's, I think, one of the things. I don't know. I wish I could get that out there. I, I mean, I'll keep trying. That's all I can do. <laughs> that's all, all. Yeah, I think that's all we can do. I, I think the other thing, um, you know, maybe maybe we will start a trend here, but let's get rid of the word influencer. What, what, um, what word would be good? Do we need a word? I was thinking as you were talking about it, um, uh, instigator. I don't know. Um, <laughs> you know. <laughs> I have no idea because, you know, it's, I don't think I play a big role in it. You know, a lot of people I think really make more of me than there really is. It doesn't take me much. I wonder things all the time. I mean, if they think my Twitter feed's bad, they should try living in my head for a day. It's all questions. Because, <laughs> you know, I get to an answer and there's more questions and it's just questions. I, I just, I don't stop because I want it. I have an anxiety. I need to know things, but then I, I also appreciate that I may not be able to. And so that I ask, why is that? Why, why can't I know? And so I don't know what kind of word you'd use. Um, I have no idea. Well, I, I'm going to, so I'm going to argue with you for one moment here. And, and I'm going to say <laughs> you, you are an influencer, but not quite in the way that you're thinking about it. One of the things that comes through constantly in the way you ask questions and the way you respond is that you're open to being wrong. That's exactly what we're talking about when we talk about intellectual humility. And when 
people see that on Twitter, that, oh, he asked a question and somebody just absolutely slammed it. And George came back and said, oh, you got a point there. Yeah, that was a dumb question. Or maybe I need to reframe the question this way or something like that. What you're doing is you're creating a framework for people to see how to be humble about what they know or what they think they know and, and to be open to being wrong about things. And, and so I, I actually would kind of disagree with you. I think you are an influencer, but more by example than by attempting to do what most influencers seem to do is just to influence people by what they write for you. It's more the example of how you're going about, you know, first of all, having questions all the time, it's interesting to see people like that. That's a positive thing. But then also I think, um, to be open to being wrong about what's going on. That's actually profound. People don't see that very often. Everybody's right about everything these days. And so when you see someone, you know, who's got a lot of followers, who's okay with saying, yep, got that wrong. You, you, you pointed it out. Uh, I actually think that's pretty influential. Um, I don't know. Am I wrong? Uh, yeah, because I'm not here to pontificate the people so much as I'm here to kind of tap into their mental power. You know, that's what I'm after. I want them to share it with us. I, I, we need help. We can't do this on our own. And you know that as a professor. You need help. You need your peer. You need your other professors. You know, I think it was Richard Feynman that said, um, you know, Princeton, which isn't too far from me. He said that there's the Center of Advanced Studies for Physics and stuff. And he said, you know, the problem with it is there's just fields and trees and stuff and there's nobody around. He said there's no experimentalists to talk to. We need to collaborate. Our power is together, not as individuals. Now, it's not to say you can't be an individual. It's just that when we want to build big things, we really work well when we work together. And so I don't know. I need the word influencer. I don't know. Just uh it's like, no, I'm not the center of this. You know, I'm just a part of it, maybe, you know, and I know what you mean. Maybe I influence in the sense of, you know, sparking a debate or discussion or thoughts. But I'm not one of these people that, you know, wears a new dress or something and comes out and, oh, look at me. <laughs> oh, the you know? dress you have on, George, is pretty nice. I mean, I, <laughs> I think so, too. I mean, I don't think most people be very happy with me. <laughs> There's better people for this. And I'm glad they do it. I'm glad they do it. Like, you know what I mean? I like the way people are different because they cover aspects that I certainly am no good at even attempting. <laughs> but my, my thing is, you know, questioning and thinking. And I, I like that. And I know there's other people that do this and I know there's other people that do it better than me. And I'm absolutely, absolutely just as capable of being wrong as anyone else. And we need to be okay with that. So what? I'm wrong. What? But we're not here trying to, you know, do something that is, you know, we need it done right now. It's not imperative. We're just all thinking. It's just a mind passing thoughts. That's all we are. Well, that is a wonderful way to bring this conversation to an end. That's, I think, a profound way of thinking about what we're doing here. So uh, this has just been a fantastic conversation, George. As always, it's just really interesting. And I want to thank you for joining me on How to Be Wrong and and just uh, for enlightening us all with your thoughts and your ideas. Thank you so much, John. This is awesome. And uh, wow, can't wait. Can't wait to hear. I can't wait to read. You know, I got to remember what I even said here and critique what I did wrong. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, it's going to be interesting to see what uh, folks uh, in the Twitterverse have to say about this. So yeah, maybe they will tell me I'm wrong. You know, please do, because I need to know. Yeah, yeah. All right. Thank you again. Thanks, John.